0: Welcome to the DFD Podcast, where we discuss all things dairy farming. This week's episode is brought to you by SureGain and Trow Nutrition and their dealer partners. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi everybody, welcome back to the uh, DFD Podcast. I know it's a beautiful rather chilly spring day out there today and I know uh, there was lots of action in the countryside last week with uh, some people starting to do some field work and get some manure out so I thought it'd be a great time to uh have a, almost an ask the agronomist uh, uh session here on the podcast so today I have uh Kelsey Banks joining me she's an agronomist in eastern Ontario and uh we're gonna talk all things forage crops so uh why don't you say hi there Kelsey
1: hi <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it, and um, I'm looking forward to kind of combining the best of both worlds: <laughs> nutrition and agronomy. Yeah,
0: I know you had a meeting there a couple of weeks ago, and there was a colleague that you uh, of mine that you work with, and uh, I know you guys were kind of doing a crossover where the agronomist or the, the dairy nutritionist was talking to the agronomist about things that they're looking for in the field crops. And then, uh, I know it sounded like you have one planned, uh, vice versa. So you can have agronomists come on and talk to dairy nutritionists about it. But I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of crossover here. I mean, a lot of these diets now are, you know, 60 plus percent forage and a, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of the research now is geared towards homegrown feeds. So what are some, I don't know, maybe top 10 things that, uh, that you and as, as an agronomist look at with uh uh feed crops,
1: so um, well, we'll start with this. So, a lot of uh folks, when they talk about scouting a field, they uh they they do the drive by, <laughs> and that, that is not <laughs> scouting a field. <laughs> You mean and, the, thir- the
0: 30 feet in from the ditch doesn't count
1: <laughs> exactly exactly but there is one type of uh scouting that you can do as you drive by or as you stop by the field and uh, it's actually a really good first step to take um so before we get into it though I just want to make sure that we're kind of thinking from t- to have some pre-considerations in mind so the time of year of it. A- a- what, you know, are we talking, are you scouting in June? Are you scouting in July? So on and so forth. Um, because that'll change things a little bit. Um, the growing environment. So has it been a drought? Has it been uh, really uh, moisture heavy? So lots of rain that, that you're dealing with. Uh, what kind of applications have been made in terms of inputs? Have you uh, like, did you just apply a herbicide, for example, or or uh, are you kind of in between herbicide and fungicide timing or where are you? And then also um, for hay crops, like what year is it? Is it on year two? Is it on year three? That kind of thing. Uh, is it a new seedling? Uh, sorry, new seeding. So just some of those things to kind of keep in mind as I speak. But uh, the first one to look at from and again, I kind of joke around and say from the road, but um, is the color of the crop. So what you're looking for is you're looking for a a consistent color, but you want a good color. You want something that looks healthy. And, um, you know, I think that uh, in general, we, we want to see that kind of uh, lush green color um, and, and really be able to see what it what those plants look like. And from a uh, an animal nutrition perspective, um, this is important because if you have a consistent good looking crop, it's a piece of the puzzle to making sure that you're growing healthy, high yielding quality feed crops. So it's really something important to look at. It's kind of like um, when you walk into a barn, for example, I'm sure that one of the things that you look at are the cow's eyes and seeing if they're dull or do they look bright and do they look healthy? So it's kind of the same idea in terms of it's a bit of a first step. Um, and then uh, number two is looking at signs of pest issues. So a pest in terms of the agronomy, uh, the agronomy world um, is, uh, is classified as an insect, weed or disease. So um, this is something that's really important. And in the sense that um, if, if you start having pest damage, then it's going to of, of some sort, then it could be a result. The result, sorry, could be that you're ending up with lower yield than what you were hoping a bit lower quality than you were hoping. And for feed crop, especially um, that's really important. You want the quality crop, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I know
0: while like just looking at it, like kind of relating this to cattle, I guess, is that if there is a parasite or something like that, like it's going to affect your overall performance. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, we can't get away from bugs. So I think, you know, first step would be identifying what, your pest is, I guess like, especially with alfalfa, like you get some weevil in there, like they can decimate a crop in a big hurry.
1: Yeah, or potato leaf hopper is another yeah. example of one that uh, it's and potato leaf hoppers, uh, you know, and again, this is kind of taking into consideration, con- sorry, consideration of what the environment has been like. Because if it's been really dry and it's been a, a bit of a, you know, a more of a droughty situation, then it, you might see signs of, um, uh, signs of potato leaf hopper a little bit more so it's just something to consider um, but in saying that the what you can be looking for are signs of like for example like are there little bites in the in the leaves of the of the crop or of uh, or are you actually seeing physical insects um same with uh same with disease and and uh weeds so Anything that is out of place and that is not supposed to be there—that's, <laughs> you know, monitor that, and be able to write that down, and show your agronomist and and kind of have them be able to see what's going on. And also, um, it's a really important to do this in a, about you know five to, I say five to ten. That's kind of my rule of thumb with with growers or um, sorry, I call them growers, and I'm sure you call them your your uh dairy <laughs> dairy clients but yep. um but uh either way um if, if they're out in the field just going to different locations in various locations and the reason for that is because you might have an area that is you know uh for example really high pigweed area well mm-hmm. if there's really high pigweed in that one area is it worth going through and being able to spray the whole entire field if you don't have access to variable uh, rate tech or sorry, variable uh, like precision rate technology and that kind of idea.
0: yeah. So
1: this is also a really good time though, to look at, um, do you have an uh, integrated pest management program and what are your numbers um, that you need to be looking out for? Like, what are your thresholds? Because it, some, it, although there are general numbers out there, uh, there are, you know, you, you might have, A different one depending on many things like your soil type etc
0: yeah so if we go back to like your first comment there with the coloration like i guess in your opinion is that i suppose it it looks at what time of year or what stage that crop is would be your coloration but is that more of a like a plant disease thing or is that more of a or an insect issue or or what are your what are your thoughts on that
1: <laughs> excellent question and i'm going to give you the greatest agronomist uh answer and tell you it depends yeah. um,
0: <laughs> I, believe it or not nutritionists use that as well <laughs>
1: we come together yeah. um, so if it's something like we like let's take a look at this past year and at least in eastern Ontario it was a bit droughty here uh, in July so if you were looking at a hay crop for example there were some areas um, that were a little bit more yellowing and from afar and that was kind of what we were able to see um, but it wasn't until you were actually into the crop and looking at those areas and kind of comparing the good in quotations versus the bad, um, and going and kind of doing a visual comparison to see because if there weren't like the little bites out of out of the yellowing area and um, and we didn't and if you didn't see any leafhoppers at all um then you know then you could submit those two for a tissue sample which would be able to tell you if there was a deficiency like a nutrient deficiency um at that point it could be uh sulfur um could be a couple of different things could be even um yeah it's (laughs) all as i say beautiful answer i know it depends (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) but uh
0: so like back to your comment about the timing year. So like as a dairy producer, what should uh, kind of first things they look for here as green up starting in, in Ontario with, uh, with the hay crop?
1: Um, so the first thing that they should be looking at is, uh, is, well a couple of things so first of all if you have access to a soil thermometer um it then that would be great to take out to the field with you and be able to collect um just go to you know again various sites throughout the field but being able to get soil um uh temperatures is a really good idea to be able to kind of get an idea of where things are um reason that i say that is because although. Um, these crops are a little bit tough. They still have to grow, um, and they've been in winter dormancy for a while. So, what you're looking for is to kind of see: well, are they 10 degree? Is the soil at 10 degrees? Is it at zero? So on and so forth, um, and and kind of seeing that as it warms up, you'll start to see that if it's at like if it's at 10 degrees, it'll start. It'll really start growing quick. Um, but it's just it really depends where we are. Again, it really depends where you are um, and what what you're experiencing, because uh, if you've had a freeze up, for example, like we just in the east, we just had a bunch of rain and then um, it's been a little bit cool. But although it yes, it's been it'll be cool on the soils, it's not going to necessarily stop growth because we because a lot of folks, if they have the hay ground, for example, in tile drain fields, well, a lot of that moisture is going to soak down and and we have sun out. So it's going to start warming up again.
0: Yeah. And what does like alfalfa or grass or whatever need like for temperature wise to, to kind of come out of that dormancy?
1: Um, I believe that it's at, I believe that it's at zero. I'd have to double check that though. Um, but it, it, again, it depends um, it, uh, what your, uh, what your, it, like, what soil type you have too because if it's something like clay clay really clay it it holds on to moisture a lot more than something like sand does so something like clay even though you know the soil might be starting to warm up it takes a longer time to warm up yeah so it's it varies that way
0: it seems to be a little bit uh more finicky too when it comes to temperature and moisture when planting and things like that too so i can i'm lucky here down in the south i'm a sand farmer we can get away with a lot of things <laughs> where you know some of my clientele in the kind of in the Lambton county on on the some of the clay loam up there you know they just can't uh they can't get away with what we get at, uh for moisture and stuff on the sand like you, if they get on it too early then you see it all year we're okay. here if you get on a little too early you might see it till you know, you get your nitrogen application on corn or something like that, and then it seems to kind of pull through. But uh yeah. no, it's it's really interesting. So sorry to sidetrack you with all these questions. I know we had, we no, had a few things that we wanted to cover off. So
1: No, no, it's all good. Um yeah, the next thing I have is uh is smell of the crop. Um, and again, this is kind of a bit of a if you can do it from the road a little bit, but again, I'm not promoting <laughs> side of the road scouting, uh, but you'll, uh, but if you can go and do into the actual field and be able to um, smell the crop, if something smells off then it might be something worth looking into and it could be something as simple as it just had a recent um, manure application and I know it sounds silly but but you know even if it was a week or so ago you know that to to you that might seem like a while but if it's been you know if you haven't had any rain and it's just been sitting there and And uh, then you get a nice, hot, humid day. We, you can imagine what that would smell like. <laughs> um, but then on the other side of it, it could be as well, like um, it, it could be something, uh, a pest management issue that, again, this is where I'm hammering on putting, the, putting together like an integrated pest management program with your agronomist. Yeah. And then I guess the next thing is, is uh, knowing what growth stage the crop is at. The reason that I say this is because um, you want to know what stage that the crop is at and how close it is that it's going to be safe, not just for you, but for the crop to apply a a specific herbicide or um, a fungicide or an insecticide, and to harvest. I know a lot of farmers. They kind of walk in the field and they're looking for when they're going to be harvesting next. But mm-hmm. it's also important to look at: is it is it safe for my crop to apply herbicides to? Because I have seen damage before, um, in in the sense of um, of uh, that they put it on either a little too late, or I've seen it too early too. And although it doesn't harm. It not all herbicides will harm it a lot. You you want to grow that crop to the best of its ability, and you don't want to hinder it, right? Same as same as calves. I don't want to hurt a calf.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we do enough research in the dairy world that you know even we're looking at uh, neonatal health, or even like just colostrum in the first day, and how that can affect the lifetime productivity of an animal. So I can imagine like anything to do with, with plants and growing like that. Like, you know, we've all seen it with compaction or whatever, you know, we put corn into early and it gets off to a tough start and, you know, it just doesn't make a crop. And I think when we're looking at something like, hay, where typically we're seeding it down for, you know, three to five years, um, Everybody talks about, you know, they don't want to get on it and put manure on new seeding and things like that just because they don't want to have tank marks and things like that through it too. So I think it's really important that we just be cognizant of of timing on everything, you know, so.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, and that leads in well to my next point actually is talking about fungicide application. Um, I know that this is a constant battle uh, with many people because – you know it is an additional cost it's mm-hmm. an additional input that it, in some ways um my opinion of fungicides and feed crops in general is that i think that you should always put one on and uh, although you should look yes at the fun- at what i what's called the disease triangle so you have one side of the triangle is your host which is your crop and mm-hmm. then that you have the other side, which is the environment that it's being grown in. So, is it droughty? Is it wet? And uh, so on. And then the other side is the pathogen. So that's what causes the disease to actually form. Um, but you know, one thing that we that um, I've seen or I've and I've dealt with it a couple of times with uh, while working with the dairy nutritionist um, with a farmer actually. Has been mycotoxin contamination, and okay. and it can cut co- in mycotoxins. They can form in in uh, in more in corn and wheat crops, but you do see it how ha- it it happen. And uh, one of the best methods of of again a pest management program is uh, is being able to be a look proactive where you can. Um, in saying that, I think that you should put put a fungicide on if it has been extremely droughty and your your yield um, potential is already declined at that point you really need to work with your agronomist and figure your agronomist and your dairy nutritionist bring them together and be able to talk to both of them about this and figure out what number you can work with because there have been times where you don't necessarily need to put it on so if you so is it a need? Yeah. Or is it that you just want? So to figure that out, you need to bring both those together both your dairy nutritionist and your agronomist together and be able to talk about that.
0: So I know we're coming up into hay season. Like I think probably I would say in the last five to seven years, it it seems like the shift on corn has been to put fungicide on. And now it's like what product and how many applications in hay or alfalfa, I guess, or I've seen it. We've done trials with farms where we've actually weighed off yield and done check strips and things like that. And it only pays, it's the old adage, you know, 60% of the time it'll pay every time. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there any other health or quality benefits in your opinion that, you know, we could use, to kind of pencil out a uh, fungicide application on hay?
1: Um, well, a, a part of it, I, it, and this is my opinion, is that I think that it helps with winter hardiness as well, because the plant is healthier than going into winter. Um, and so it, it, and, you know, I, I agree with your trials in, in that sense. And I guess that's why I say that, you know, at the end of the day, really what it comes down to is the, is, is that disease triangle and figuring out what best, what works best, not just um, for you, but also within that triangle.
0: Yeah. Because it was funny and I'd have to look back at the Springs cause we did it two years in a row. So last year it was kind of a drier, more moderate spring and it really It was a wash, like they didn't, they weren't ahead of anything on quality or quantity. But the year before it was interesting because it was a little bit wetter and it just seemed that that hay did better with the fungicide application. Mm -hmm. So there must have been some kind of pathogen there. My thinking would be is that there was something keeping that uh, check strip from, you know, seeing its potential. So with the fungicide application, it actually, it paid quite well.
1: Yeah. One thing to take into consideration too is the humidity. And I know that, um, it may seem odd to think of, think of humidity as a, as part of that, but it is part of the environment. And if, in you know, it might, if you have a very, very humid, uh, summer, um, and you know, it might only rain, let's say, uh, five out of 30 days kind of thing mm-hmm. then before fungicide timing well that might be what could trigger the pathogen to release it, it
0: it's interesting because i know it depends like some producers they have to pay for a custom app and
1: mm-hmm. they have to
0: pay for the product so it can get quite costly you know if somebody is has their own sprayer yeah. and is willing to uh to do that application i think i think going forward we're going to see more and more of it so
1: yeah, and I don't have the numbers on me, but um, I, I remember once seeing there, someone had done a trial where it was comparing um, the cost of fungicide and application versus having mycotoxins in your feed and, and having issues or sorry, I think it was having feed issues and they had done like a side by side. So the actual trial itself originally was supposed to be what was your yield and quality like if you use fungicide versus not. And, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, though, they were able to pull um, an ROI report. And I thought it was really interesting because even though, yes, it did cost them more by the time they paid for the fungicide and the um, custom sprayer, it actually ended up, they made more money because they, they were able to kind of balance things out a little bit. Um, so I thought that was uh, interesting. Um, because, again, I think it comes down to, you know, I realize that that's one farm and that's coming mm-hmm. off of their management style and what they have available to them. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that's for everyone.
0: <laughs> no, I know. And I remember, so back to the fungicide, because I I don't know the product, but it was, oh, I got to think back to twenty. 2016 maybe it was was there bad cutworm in western Ontario at that time I don't know I'm dating myself but (laughs) it's it's interesting because there was a lot of cutworm and then we had vomitoxin from that and then um, it seemed like everybody you know was two to four parts per million then in 2018 I believe it was 18 or 19 we had a lot of jib so we had really really crazy high toxins but it was interesting because the stuff, the toxins from, I think it was 16, were way worse at lower numbers than they on cattle than they were in 18 with way higher numbers. And <laughs> I just, I don't know why. I don't know if it was just because maybe it was disease injury versus a, a, a just a crop disease with jib compared to cutworm damage, but I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, it could be numerous things, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, the, my, my next two points are actually, uh, talking about, um, uh, like feeding the soil. So nutrient management a little bit. Um, and, uh, the first one I want to talk about is sulfur. Um, it's become a bit of a hot topic I've noticed with farmers talking about that applying sulfur onto alfalfa and, um, there's a reason for it. So sulfur, it, it's been proven that it does help increase uh, quality and yield by applying additional sulfur onto your alfalfa crop. In saying that, um, I'm not going to give you any numbers <laughs> of what to apply, <laughs> and I, I can see Cirque working over there. Yeah. Um, but the reason for that is uh, because every soil is different and every and in saying that it makes growing the crops differently it makes what's available in the soil differently there's so many numbers to balance there that there's in my opinion I think that you need to look at um everything from uh, you know the soil test to what's you know, what's been growing um and so forth to be and looking at yield goals and quality goals too um but uh um yeah, so the kind of background of this is, is that alfalfa is a hungry crop. It loves to eat. It's kind of like me at a Dairy Queen. <laughs> I love ice cream. <laughs> I could eat ice cream all day. Just like alfalfa could go for some sulfur and boron too. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's one of those things in probably, I would say, the last three to five years there's been more talk of it Mm calcium it's amazing what it's doing like who would have thought you know adding a few pounds of sulfur and and then the yield increases that you see and i think it perpetuates too because it seems like once the producer is on the program um the cut or the the stands seem to be healthier the longer that they're established Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So like the, when you're getting into like third and and fourth year, hay, like I'm finding, I don't know if it's a seasonality with winter kill or if it's how we've changed and how we're feeding the crop, but the hay just seems to come through the winter better Mm -hmm. and we get better yield in the spring. So.
1: Yeah. Well, and it, and it kind of, um, sulfur, sulfur is interesting on, in many ways because nitrogen and sulfur are mobile nutrients Mm -hmm. um meaning that they move in the soil a a lot more well a lot more phosphorus kind of just like sits there (laughs) yeah and uh potassium it does move a little bit but it's it's a little bit a little bit lazy i guess you could say in that way um so it's just kind of interesting because uh yes like sulfur it's one that you that, that it's important to consider but again they you know you look at different areas in terms of what they have in their soils and what they have available to them and that's something to consider is that there's some areas that they have um, an over like a oversupply of sulfur in their soils and it's just not being used by other crops as mu- as much so if you were to put alfalfa into that field it's just something to consider that you know yep. it you're it's going to use up that sulfur and so again it comes to nutrient management planning then on that um that side of it but uh yeah and um yeah. And then, and boron, it's also an, another report, uh, important one to consider. And, um, you know, this one's up for debate a lot, actually, believe it mm-hmm. or not. Um, in my opinion, I really like putting boron into uh, into a nutrient management plan for, especially if there's alfalfa there. And the reason for that is because it provides greener, leafier plants, um, and it's usually high protein. So, Usually, I, the nutritionist is happy on that side, and so is the the farmer. So I was going to say what? something
0: about that on, like, on sulfur too. Don't you need sulfur to build protein?
1: Um, it's one of the contributors.
0: Okay, so it's not just it's not just sulfur on its own. It's no. it's a kind of a myriad of different different yeah. nutrients
1: yeah yeah so and you know that's kind of where um if you're looking at like macronutrients versus micronutrients um that's kind of where you know you you have to look at and this is why agronomists push well not just why but part of why agronomists push soil testing so hard is because we want to be able to get a very good look and a wide perspective of what what's going on in your soil Because, because there's a lot of different nutrients that all work together, but we have to know what's, what's there and how things are already working because, you know, it, it might save you. It might even save you as the farmer money Mm -hmm. on new, on your fertilizer blend. Um, Especially if you've been putting the newer on that field and everything. And again, you know, um, we don't know. Uh, because we're not the ones sitting in the tractor in the spreader knowing how much you're putting out um, so a lot of times you know that's kind of uh, yeah it all kind of works together um, but yeah and then um, this kind of leads a little bit into this but talking about plant stand and uh, height count I've seen, I've been asked to do this before. And what I like to do is take out the actual, the, I call it my counting square and it's yep. <laughs> one foot by one foot. Uh, it's kind of going through and counting how many stems there are mm-hmm. of alfalfa growing. Um, you know, a lot of people, that's kind of where the numbers get a little mixed up and then it's hard to know, like what, you know, what are they considering um, it in, in how successful this, this, piece of uh, ground is and what's going on and what the plant stands at so you're what you want to do is, is really count the ones the stems that are about two in two inches tall and higher um in in a small area using that um the uh the counting square and then and what i try and do is i try and do it in um in you know i i think i do it's been a while since i've had to do this now uh <laughs> it's been a whole year <laughs> uh i it's about i try and do it in about uh, five to ten places um and uh in various different places in the field and remember trying to get onto areas where there's you know you might be on a knoll so like an elevation area or, or an elevated area sorry or if you're even if you're in a in kind of a bit of a ditch or something um, you it's important to count those different areas because they're going to have different populations, depending on what, you you know, like on um, kind of soil health and that side of it too. Um, So once I count all those um I kind of uh, figure out what the um what the average is I'm not going to give you an actual number on this (laughs) because it depends on what your what soil type you have and also what your seeding rate was what your mix is the list goes on so um yeah, that's kind of that part of it, and um, yeah, and kind of. Sorry, going back to nutrient management though, um, is soil sampling. Mm-hmm. So this is something that, again, as an agronomist, I can I think I can speak for the others and uh, other agronomists and say that we we you know may sound like we are repeating to you so can we soil test and everything <laughs> but the, there's a reason for it i promise and uh, that that you should be soil testing your ground it doesn't matter if it's hay ground or not once every three years yeah. that's kind of the go-to rule um And, you know, there's, and one thing to keep in mind is what I mentioned earlier about nitrogen and sulfur being a mobile nutrient. So, you know, those numbers, if you get your land, for example, uh, soiled, or sorry, sampled in um, in the fall, just keep in mind that if you do get your get you know nitrate testing done and that kind of thing on there um that it may not be very accurate come spring and it's not the best to base your um uh, nutrient recommendation off of first specifically those two um off of what's coming off of Uh, out of the field then because you have winter to go through so you're going to have you know some you may have some leaching or you may have some other issues where um it's just or sorry not issues I guess but losses um in some ways Uh, and it could just be simply because that's what's going
0: so something like sulfur then I know we're talking about sulfur here but um is it mobile kind of like what nitrogen would be in the soil soil then like like, will it leach away? Like if you get excess moisture, does it disappear with the water? Like say a nitrogen might.
1: It's not as quick of a mover from what I, from what I understand. Um, but it is, it, it does have the capability to leach and, and it has, and it's just something to consider. Like I, I know for myself just to kind of keep it as simple as, I I like the saying keep it keep it simple st- yeah. keep it st- keep st- it simple, simple silly <laughs> yeah something <laughs> like that <laughs> but uh because you know and and treat nitrogen and sulfur very similarly like I you know I for example I I don't I don't put those in crop plants to be applied in the you, you know after harvest kind of thing and and things mm-hmm. like that um, and uh, and I again, it's just, it really depends on kind of what you, what you have going on. Like if you have a tile tile, and for example, you know, tile is a great, wonderful thing, but it's just something that, um, uh, was with nitrogen and sulfur, just, you you just have to be cautious. You have to be cautious of the environment. That's, that's you
0: don't want to over apply. You want to apply maybe just enough and build a cushion a bit, maybe. Um, um, speaking out loud here so <laughs> no it's okay
1: yeah. <laughs> um not I again not in the fall I prefer <laughs> but, yeah no uh, <laughs> but like in the
0: spring if you're gonna spread like you're not gonna over like more is not better correct
1: yeah so um in in some ways so there's kind of um there's kind of a, a few different ways of uh, putting together a fertilizer blend and in general, and there's the sufficiency approach, which is when you figure out the yield goal and kind of what the realistic yield goal is. And then um, you, you figure out from there how much you need of each nutrient. So it's not yeah. pulling anything from the soil necessarily. And, um, it's using some, maybe in some situations, but uh, but then there's also the um, the uh, build up and maintain is what it's called. So okay. it's where it's where, for example, if a, an area or if a field is um, is really really low in potassium,
0: yeah. <laughs> then.
1: Uh, then, you know, you might want to, you can start to build that a little bit um, by adding, you know, little bits each year. Um, it depends though, because in that, in terms of if you, what approach you use, because if you own the land or if you rent it, yeah. if you rent the land, do you want to be putting more money towards it? If, if, you, um, if you don't have ownership of it and know that it's in your hands. I
0: suppose it depends on how long your contract is
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, something like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah. And then the other thing too, is I, and I, I know this, I kind of, I'm slipping this in because I've seen this a, a, a couple of a uh, few times, but um, when you're putting together a nutrient management plan um, and you're putting together your farm crop plan, please, yeah. I beg you. Crop rotation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, with dairy farmers, it's difficult sometimes because not all dairy farmers are very land rich. Like they don't mm-hmm. have excess acres around, you know, they might have enough to grow their forage crops, you know, whether it be just some corn and some, like some silage and some cob meal or some high moisture corn, or maybe some dry corn and and hay ground. And, you know, land isn't getting any cheaper. So it's, it's just uh
1: well, and it's interesting you, you say that, and because I totally agree with you, and yep. I, I 100% am on board for that. One thing that I approached a couple of farmers about it is you know, there's a lot of grain farmers out there, cash croppers, that they're looking for manure. So yeah. if they're looking for manure, and and you have a luxury, a luxury amount of specific nutrients in your soil because you you've it's been in hay for x amount and you know you're looking and you're looking to rotate your land and they're looking for more nutrient available like Mm -hmm. nutrients able to come to them and organic nutrients like manure would it be possible to do like a land swap for five years let's say yeah so I don't know I like I I haven't uh (laughs) there's a couple people I think that would be you know possibly interested in something like that but uh
0: well it's interesting I was talking to one of my clients last week about it and and they're talking about selling some of their manure and I was like did you ever think there'd be a time where you're selling expletive Mm -hmm. and (laughs) making money (laughs) off of it (laughs) They had a good laugh, but I mean, it's, it's the reality of agronomics right now is people are looking for manure and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm seeing more of it on, you know, Twitter or or like farm papers and that where, you know, we've got manure for sale. We got chicken manure, we got beef manure, we got dairy manure, you know, uh, a good friend of mine uh, sells mushroom compost and he trucks it all over the place and, and, you know, cash croppers are looking for organic matter.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
0: it's just interesting how things well,
1: change. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I guess that's kind of why I was thinking about the land swap idea a little bit, because, you know, you think of like you think of a hay crop with alfalfa in it. Well, that's a an, another legume that they can add to their rotation. And in, yep. in Ontario, right, where our typical rotation, especially uh, grain farmers that they're doing is corn soy wheat they might throw canola in there they might and so on and it just really depends but um you know i guess that's also where like talking about uh, bringing up canola is is uh, and i think uh your coworker and i were talking about that the other day a little bit but yeah. um you know c- growing canola as a feed crop is is another option of in some areas, I will say that of, uh, you know, but it's another option of getting, of adding another crop in there that might be useful for acres in situations like those. So let's like talk about
0: like. that for a second. That's interesting. So are they chopping the canola and like putting it in a silo, like a bunk silo or are they just like using the seed?
1: Basically it's being separate. They're bringing it to, um, a processing plant and then it's being separated out similar to like soy meal kind of oh yeah
0: like yeah that's pretty common that people are using canola
1: mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah yeah it's but i'm just saying you could grow it as another crop in there yeah it would do, <laughs> do some good things too <laughs> yeah. um but yeah and then my final point though is talking about tissue sampling um and i know that it's typically seen as uh as a method to figure out if if you're deficient in um in nutri- like in a specific nutrient or so on and so forth but uh, sometimes it's nice to look at um, at your at deficiencies and seeing and sorry at a tissue sample and being able to see what the what is kind of going on in that crop at specific times of the year and um because again talking about nutrient mobility for example you want to make sure that you have enough available at, at specific times and um you know I've seen some guys they or some sorry some farmers what they like to do is they'll take a tissue sample and they'll um and they just they'll look at the moisture of the of, of what the what comes back on the report Mm -hmm. and the reason that they're looking at the moisture um is actually to figure out again with our humidity do they need to apply a, a fungicide
0: so like as an agronomist would you look at a feed sample after say like they're doing they're done doing first cut hay and if you look at a say a green analysis of it would you be able to see I guess what the level of fertility is in that soil by looking at some key indicators. Like I know why I, I always look at two, I look at all the time are potassium and at sulfur. And my kind of rule is if you're under point, I think 0.22 on a dry matter basis on, you know, chopped feed on sulfur, if you're under that, I often wonder, are you limiting your fertility? Is your fertility limiting your yields?
1: yes and no so if it's something like um so if it's something like sulfur for example it sounds like in that situation i i would put sulfur on to, on there and you know there's opportunity to do that again though it does come back to timing for what is safe mm-hmm. for the crop and what is safe for you know i i say the market of of the of the crop but what is safe for the cows like and yep. and that kind of thing and i think this is where um you know where Jake where uh, Jake and i were talking about you know collaborating on the agronomy and nutrition side of things this is where we can kind of come together and do do better for the farmer
0: yeah i totally agree like it's it's interesting like we're as a nutritionist we're looking at ways that we can maximize the output on cows but sometimes I think we don't take into consideration what the producer's doing out in the field and trying to maximize what we're trying to do in the barn as well because I think you know the trend in the industry is to go to higher forage so how do we maximize yield on especially if you have limited land base and how do you maximize quality Mm -hmm. you know like what like we got to feed the crop that feeds the cows I guess is the basis or the most basic terms to put it so
1: well and I think from the agronomy side we focus so much on yield and and overall quality that Mm -hmm. we sometimes you know we sometimes maybe forget to ask those questions of you know we know what the purpose is of the crop but like what's it being fed to, for example? And yeah. you know this is where I, Jacob and I came up with the ideas of of doing that um, webinar was because of, uh, talking to agronomists about dairy nutrition. But there's so many things that we compare to each other like to each other and we're like, you know does this at, at what point does it, like what level of quality do you need from a feed nutrition side of things? yep
0: yeah.
1: to be for the farmer to reach and for that goal to uh, that goal what is it that we need to do because we can figure out the plan part of it yeah. but we need to know what what you want what the <laughs> end what the end use
0: of that product is right or that crop
1: yeah so and you know I've talked to a couple of people too about um like I have a few friends in the dairy world that I've asked before so you know it, and it may sound dumb but you know, I, I'm not a nutritionist. I like, I don't know all the answers to that. And I, you know, but I want to know, like, what, what are you feeding dry cows? Are you feeding dry cows? You know, I know that you feed milk cows at like Kings because they, they produce milk, but you know, how do you feed a dry cow? And what are you looking for in that kind of feed? Like, are you in in that kind of thing? Is it high forage forage, uh, forages or what's in it?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, the biggest concern, or the biggest thing with dry cows is, seems to be lately, is limiting energy. So, you know, we're, I find we're feeding a lot more straw or oat hauls or products like that that are a lot lower in quality, you know, trying to fill that cow up. And I, I heard this a long time ago in the U.S. is that we grow crops to feed to our cows and adapt it to our heifers and dry cows. So they want to grow the best crops that they could and put up the highest quality forage that they could. And then it was us as nutritionists trying to figure out how to feed that to the other animals on the farm, right? Like they weren't going to compromise crop quality on alfalfa or on corn silage so that they could accommodate the dry cows. It was up to us as the nutritionists to figure that out for them. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I I guess your question would be, yeah, we're feeding them a lot of straw, a lot of wheat straw lot of corn silage we're trying to limit haylage uh in a lot of places just because of potassium Mm -hmm. and then you know we're we're looking at some protein or some digestible fiber sources too sometimes with like your beet pulps and and soy hulls and and things like that and then a vitamin and mineral premix. so pretty Mm -hmm. simple that way but yeah you're right like we we really focus on what to feed the cows and then we adapt what we put up for the for the lactating animals to the rest of the herd so but it's interesting because you know, in the last few years, um, I've seen a trend and, and part of it too is we're, is I'm pushing a little bit, but like growing crops after wheat, you know, looking at, you know, oats and peas or oats or oats or, uh, sorry, oats, uh, peas and barley and, and crops like that, where we can get a secondary use or a secondary crop off of say, mm-hmm. um, some land that would have otherwise probably just sat fallow for the rest of the year, you know, after, after straw was harvested off of it and, in July and August. So, you know, it's yeah. good. We get to put extra manure on, we get to feed some stuff and it's more, if the producer has room for it, then it's a specific feed for, for the heifers or, or, um, or dry cows, you know? So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, not to bring on a whole new topic, but <laughs> I think, yeah, <laughs> I think this is like, you know, that's an opportunity for cover crops. So too is, is yeah. in, in kind of, you know, putting, putting them um, you know putting another purpose towards putting in a cover crop.
0: Yeah well it's a it's a it's a great idea like you said with uh, land sharing or like different like land proposal uses is you know if maybe if you do have a, a cash crop neighbor that has you know a couple hundred acres of wheat, it might be something hey, we'll put some manure on it. we're gonna plant some oats and we're gonna take the oats off of it. And you get some manure and maybe there's a cash rent deal or some other kind of thing like i'm sure the producer can come up with some kind of agreement that is good for both of them but i mean it makes sense if you're going to put some manure out there and you're going to have some root mass left over to overwinter that that rather than maybe using that other dirty four letter word i hear agronomists talk about a lot and plow but uh
1: (laughs) I'm like offended right now. I'm part of the Ontario Soil Network too,
0: I should add. I knew I had to get that one in there at some point, but. uh, Oh, I knew it It was going to come So I guess one kind of final thought or question here, uh, Kelsey, but like if you put your producer hat on, like what is the best ROI that a, that a, where should a producer kind of focus to get their best ROI when it comes to an agronomy plan for their, uh, for their field crops or forage crops?
1: Honestly, I really, I really believe that on on consistent and good soil, like good, um, good soil sampling. And the reason that I say that is because a lot of times now we go out into a field and we get maybe 10 cores for like a hundred acres. And in our minds we think well we covered the whole field and we mm-hmm. went all over. Well, it really it should be one sample made up of eight to ten cores per sample, but it's for 20 acres. Okay that's one sample. okay. So it's just, and I think that now it's just something that it's not, it's, it's done, but it has to be done right to be able to get the most out of it and get correct data.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I know like we look at it when we're sampling forage too, it's like, we're taking a few cores or handfuls out of a 3000 ton bunk silo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're trying to make a recipe that's best for that, but we're, you know, hoping that the variability doesn't change a whole lot in it, but like everything else, it does, you know, what you're feeding today isn't going to be the same as you're feeding tomorrow or the day after that, but we just got to, got to make our best educated guess and, Mm -hmm. and kind of go with it from there. So. Was there any other thoughts or questions or anything that you want to talk about?
1: Um, well, one thing I've been asked about a few times from a few different dairy farmers has been about um, precision agriculture technologies that they're using out in the field. And, mm-hmm. you know, and if they, you know, if it's worth their money, basically, to get those technologies if they if, if they don't have additional land to be doing um, cash cropping on. And uh, one, th- one point I would like to make on that is that... Um, Again, I'm going to give you the agronomist answer. It, it depends. depends. <laughs> <laughs> but depends. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that it, I really see value in it is that if you have very varied land, which mm. it's not uncommon to have hills running through the, the fields and so on and so forth, you know, it's, it, that kind of technology could end up saving you money. Mm -hmm. in the end because you might not need to put as much fertilizer at the bottom of knolls and and and, in different things so you can change your seeding rates and these kinds of things in different areas and you know again it kind of comes back to that combination of data and putting it all together but it's something that it just it really depends on what on on what your looking at what's your farm goals and what are your field goals but also this is where in my opinion teamwork comes together and counts
0: you're convincing me that we should sit down with agronomists you know probably at the end of the season and before the new season starts and maybe even Mm -hmm. once in the summer just to kind of plan out see where we're where we're at and what we need to do because uh you know, the way feed prices are gone, it's not always easy to uh, source uh, feed products
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in the dairy industry. And, you know, we're going through a lot of them and it's a lot of cash to put out to buy in things like beet pulp or soy hulls or things like that where, you know, maybe if we spend a little bit more time on on an agronomy plan and get some better uh, yields or more productive acres, you know, it could save some producers some money in the long run, so…
1: And it might end up helping everyone like all, you know, yeah. because then the agronomist knows what's going on and, and, you know, that's, and it's just, it's, yeah. I see a beautiful world when I think of teamwork <laughs> like that.
0: It's <laughs> very millennial of you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Anyways, Kelsey, Kelsey, sorry. I, uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming on uh the podcast today and and talking and about uh and something you're very passionate about and i uh i really appreciate um you sharing your insights when it comes to uh, forage crops and feed crops
1: thank you very much for having me thanks
0: thanks again for listening to the dfd podcast if you would like to have further discussions about the topics we talked about on this show please contact me keith switzer i have left my contact information in the show notes i would also like to say thanks to our sound engineer daniel mohera for future updates on topics and guests please follow me on twitter at keith switzer